The healthcare industry has undergone transformational change in the past 10 years, especially as it relates to the implementation of technology. Even so, there's much more to do and many companies are out there doing it, but you don't know about them. At Intrepid Healthcare, our podcast will bring you the crazy ones, the rebels, the troublemakers, the ones who see things differently. The people that are crazy enough to think they can change the world in healthcare. So sit tight and enjoy as we tell the story of another thought leading trailblazer. Welcome back to Intrepid Healthcare. I'm your host, Joe Lavelle, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation with another trailblazing innovator. We're going to get right to it today. We're joined by Mandy Long, Vice President of Product Management at Modernizing Medicine. Mandy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Joe. Well, thanks for making the time to be with us today. Before we start a discussion, could you tell the audience about you and your background? Sure. I am currently the Vice President of Product Management for Modernizing Medicine. I have spent my entire career in the healthcare technology space. Prior to ModMed, I was Vice President of Product Management for Passport Health Communications, which is now Experian Health. And then prior to that, I did implementations and a little bit of product at Epic. Great. And then if you could remind the audience what you guys do at Modernizing Medicine. Sure. Modernizing Medicine is really the next generation of healthcare technology. We are specialty-specific. We're a data-driven and cloud-based EHR and practice management system that really caters to the surgical specialty. We're different for a lot of reasons, but I think a couple that are that are most interesting is that we're built by a team of specialty physicians and practice management professionals. So there's really no translation between what the end user needs and what gets into the product. Our docs build it right in for us. That's outstanding. And the first topic mainly I want to talk about is user experience. How would you define user experience? And then why is user experience so important for those physicians, their staff, and the patients? So user experience is really the holistic view of how a person uses a product. And for the purposes of how we think about healthcare technology, it's not just about how the software itself works. It's also about how the software is configured or implemented or used from a workflow standpoint and trained to end users. So when I think about really UX and and the user experience as a whole, we look at the end-to-end relationship for an end user with our product. As it relates to the impact and the importance for really physicians and staff as well as their patients, for physicians and and for the folks who are really using our product on a day-to-day basis or any product for that matter, UX is the key to whether or not they can really be successful and effective in how they practice medicine. So an example for you would be if I am a physician who's trying to document a visit with a patient and I have to spend most of my time sitting in front of a keyboard and looking at a screen and I'm not really looking at the patient, it's difficult for me to care for the person as a whole. I'm really relying then on verbal cues and what the patient is telling me in between turning around and trying to glance at them rather than having an optimized user experience that gives me something, for example, like a native tablet where I can interact directly with the patient and in a touch-based environment, I can document and diagnose and treat that patient as a whole person rather than what I'm just seeing in front of me on a screen. Outstanding. What are the risks of having a poor user experience? Bad UX is 
as costly as I think any other problem. And in some cases, I think it's riskier. So poor user experience can, you know, do something as benign as potentially take me a couple of extra clicks to do a particular workflow, right? I think that's what people think about initially. But the ripple effect is that it can be very detrimental in some cases if the user experience isn't optimal, because I may miss critical data related to a patient. And that can tie into things like patient safety. Or as a patient, for example, if I have bad user experience on the portal, I may not understand all of the aspects of my medical record. And so when I'm trying to translate that to a different clinical user who I'm seeing, you know, God forbid, in an emergent environment, I may miss pieces of data that are really critical for them to be able to treat me appropriately. So UX ties just as much as any of the other big items we're seeing talked about in the space, whether it be interoperability, security, the sort of core functionality of a product. If you don't have good UX, then users can't be successful in treating their patients and patients can't be successful in understanding and being empowered to participate in their care. Mandy, I know you pride yourself in your innovation. How can health IT innovation improve patient and customer experience? You know, I think everybody plays a role in user experience, and that's something that I certainly spend a lot of time talking about here at Modernizing Medicine, and it's something that I think our industry is starting to spend more time talking about. It's not just on the developer's you know, whether it be an EHR provider or another piece of technology. It's not just on them to create an optimal user experience. Like I talked about earlier, the selection, so those who are purchasing technology or even the implementation of technology is just as important. So if I make decisions around how I'm going to configure it, I need to involve the people who are leveraging it every day. I think that's really the key. You need to go to the end user and you need to make sure that you're solving the problem that's in front of them and not the problem as you believe you understand it. So doing a really good job of listening and then doing an even better job of validating. So there are methodologies out there, and I think the one that most folks are familiar with is user-centered design. That's something that technology vendors like Modernizing Medicine use, and it helps us to ensure that the solutions that we develop and then subsequently deploy to market are the ones that really do meet the user need. That's right. That's outstanding. I appreciate you sharing that. As important as experience is, outcomes are even more important. How can health IT innovation improve patient outcomes? So for patient outcomes, I think really, and there's been a lot of discussion about this in the industry as well, the key is the data. And whether you talk about UX or you want to talk about it as it relates to visualization or analytics, the ability to take the data that's documented in a particular system and visualize it, make it available to a clinical user at the point of care in a way that's consumable and specific to that patient is the key to improving patient outcomes. Because I, even as a patient, from my perspective, if I'm seeing a physician, it's so much more powerful if that physician has more than just the knowledge that's in their head Right, if they can actually rely on the system to help them take a deeper look at how patients like me have been treated and then make decisions that help to actually facilitate better outcomes for me. Right. We can talk about whether it be age, gender, socioeconomic status, what are the things that influence my health overall, and what are patients like me, how are we being treated, and what are our outcomes so that we can make decisions for me that actually make the most sense given who I am as a person. Tell me about how you're using technology to improve care, to empower patients, how modernizing medicine is doing it and being so successful at it. 
There are a couple of things that we're doing and some big strategies for us that were in 2016 that are carrying forward into 2017. But I think a couple that I'd highlight is one is our outcome systems. We have a feature and we have technology that's built into EMMA, our EHR, that really does show how a patient's really improving and or you know, declining or, or not improving over time. So if a physician is documenting that in the system as they're treating me as a patient, the physician is then able to actually visualize that and see that over time so they can start to tweak how I'm being treated to ensure that I'm actually getting better. A couple of other things that we're doing, I think Dr. Michael Sherling in a previous discussion with you talked about telemedicine as being another key to really helping to improve outcomes, especially for patients who really aren't close to a specialist office or, you know, who may, instead of talking to a healthcare professional, may sort of go out into the internet and, you know, hope to find the right answer. I think things like telemedicine help to engage patients and help to make sure that we're following through on their care and that we're seeing the results of the recommendations that we're making as clinical providers. A couple of other things that we're doing in a broader sense are around analytics and population health. So if you think of the power of data and something that's unique about modernizing medicine software is that it's all structured, meaning that as a user leverages our technology and they're tapping through the system, right? It's all touch-based. We're storing and capturing that data discreetly on the back end, which means that we're able to glean knowledge and and information and share that back to the provider in a way that virtually no other vendor is capable of doing because it's all structured. And so when I talked earlier about being able to get at me as a patient, right, what are the factors that are sort of more than just I am X number of years old and I am a female, being able to drill in more to some of the details of who I am as an individual. We have a feature that's called Grand Rounds that really looks at more than just the basics of who a patient is. And that's really because we have discrete data. So we can look at things like comorbidities and be able to make great prescribing recommendations and give providers information about what's worked for patients like the one that's sitting in front of them. I love my conversation with Dr. Sherling. And the reason why is I really got the sense that you weren't just slapping on the telemedicine module onto your software. You were thinking of it in terms of patient engagement, how you could change the life and change the way patients engage with your physicians so that, I don't know how to say it nicely, but I've talked to other vendors and they talk about building on telemedicine, but they talk about it in the context of how they operate today. Mm -hmm. And I have this pessimistic view that we've designed healthcare around the physician instead of around the patient. And I'm a patient and I want it designed around me because I'm the one who pays for healthcare. <laughs> so if I need an appointment at seven o'clock at night, I want to be able to get an appointment at seven o'clock at night, not wait till three Thursdays from now to get that. And I think telemedicine is one of the enabling technologies to really be able to do those kind of things. And the fact that you guys were really the pioneer, one of the pioneers to build telemedicine right into your applications and workflow, I think is huge. And I'm sure you're reaping the benefit years later as you're years ahead of others that have kind of slapped on a telemedicine front end to their regular way of working. How have you found your customers and, and then the end patients are appreciating your solution with respect to telemedicine? 
something that I'm certainly proud of is a lot of what you articulated is we were very early to market in our belief that telemedicine was the future of how patients were going to be able to engage with clinicians, even if they were right, if they didn't want to wait on a three-month wait list and they had a relatively urgent case or something that they needed to have looked at, telemedicine is a great way for the patient and the provider to engage on their own terms and on their own time. And I'm a patient as well, and I am a mother. And I can tell you from the perspective of a mother who has children, right, my children happen to be very, very young, so they're great at getting sick. (laughs) And, you know, they never get sick at three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. Right. And so a platform like telemedicine empowers me as a parent and even as a patient myself to say, hey, can I get you after hours to just give me an opinion on this? Is this something that's concerning enough for me to need to act on it now? Can I act on it later? And if we can act on it now, I can do it from the comfort of my own home rather than having to find a way to schlep three children under three in a (laughs) car to an urgent care at whatever time of night. And so I think that from the patient experience standpoint, it's a lot better. And there's good news for telemedicine as a whole. So the 21st Century Cures Act that really was just put into law not too long ago really gives telemedicine a big boost, right? So there's language in the act that looks at telemedicine reimbursement, which has, I think, been a big hindrance for the uptake because from a physician standpoint, their time is precious and they want to be able to see patients, but we've historically incentivized volume. And so if I'm not being reimbursed at the same rate that I would be for an in-person visit that I'm incentivized as a physician to do in-person visits. The Cures Act is looking to address that. And so I have very high hopes for telemedicine taking off even more in 2018 and 2019. And I think modernizing medicine is very well positioned to play a big role in that. Great. I'm glad you mentioned the 21st Century Cures Act. What are the most important factors for vendors, for providers and patients? So from a vendor standpoint, the 21st Century Cures Act gets at some of the heart of, I think, where we've really struggled as an industry to empower and achieve the type of outcomes that we know we're capable of helping physician communities to get at. And interoperability is a big, strong, resonating (laughs) component of that. There's the standards that we're looking at seeing this sort of trusted exchange framework. We want this common agreement, right? What is the standard going to be? There's a lot of options out there. And the great news is I think folks have been working on it in industry for a while. There's the interoperability showcase at HIMSS, the community, whether it be the EHRA or other vendor associations. It's a hot topic because the ability to move data effectively between systems is the key, right? If you're a patient and you're in the position, going back to a personal example for me, so my daughter has Turner syndrome. And so we have a wide spectrum of specialists that we need to see on a regular basis. And I'm still in the position in 2017 of having the patient Bible. I have a big four-inch binder that's full of all of the paper versions of the medical records that I've been able to get that I bring with me to every visit to try to ensure that we don't do too much redundant testing and that everybody's aware of the latest and greatest. And interoperability solves that problem for me as a mother and even as a patient. And so the ability for us to get to some kind of standard is really exciting. And I think that 
what the Cures Act gets at as well is really the ramifications if a vendor doesn't participate. So there's real language and consequence in there for vendors around this thing called data blocking. So if you're seen as participating in data blocking, you can receive a penalty up to a million dollars per violation. From a vendor standpoint, that's real incentive. But I'm hopeful, and I think in the association communities that I participate in, What I really love hearing is that I think that most of the vendors that are out there, we're trying to do it, and we have been. So Modernizing Medicine, for example, is a contributing member in the Commonwealth Health Alliance, and it's because we believe really strongly in the power of being able to move data effectively. So from a vendor standpoint, I think those are a couple of things. There's some other stuff in there that's interesting that I think we're going to learn a lot more about. So usability is a new topic. I know we talked about that a little bit earlier. That's kind of new in the way that they're looking at it, right? Having it as a part of attestation and certification that you follow the principles kind of behind UCD and user-centered design. That's something that we're going to watch in terms of how does that manifest, right? Is it something that's metrics-based and measurable? Is it something that the vendors have to just sort of attest to as a part of their certification processes? I think we'll learn more as the work groups start to get established. There's language in there around security, as you'd expect, right, with a lot of what's happening in just technology in general. Cybersecurity is critical, and it's certainly seen and gets attention in cures. But for me, I think I, like many vendors, we're looking really, really closely at interoperability because it's such a big component of cures and it's such a big component to really the future of our industry. It sort of hits two points that I happen to be really passionate about and one of which we talked about earlier is usability. Is Interoperability only works if you can make it usable. So a question you asked me earlier was, Right. What are some of the risks to usability? And I think really interoperability is a risk because if I can move data between systems, but that data doesn't reconcile the right way or it's not really shown or visualized in a way for the end user that's consumable, then we really haven't improved the user experience and we really haven't done much with the data. So I think we really shouldn't think of them as being too mutually exclusive because they tie so closely together. Yeah, absolutely. Well, since you got my soapbox on interoperability out, I'm going to jump up on it with you. I feel like meaningful use failed. We can save it by putting interoperability in. It should have been in meaningful use version one. The fact that we're giving every doctor and every hospital an EMR system and they can't talk to each other never made any sense to me. I never got it. I've been talking about that since 2010. But now we have the opportunity, and I'm going to stop complaining about it and start doing something about it, (laughs) like creating a series on our show to do that. As a vendor, though, why is interoperability so important for improving patient care and improving outcomes? Well, if you look at it from a specialist perspective, so dermatology, which is a specialty that we have a high degree of presence in, a dermatologist only sees a sliver of that patient, right? Because I may present for acne or I may present for a rash, but that might not tell the full story of me. Do I have hypothyroidism or am I also being treated by a gastroenterologist? Do I have high cholesterol or sort of what is the story of me as a whole? And for a Physician, so there's been you know plenty of articles and studies done recently about physician burnout, right, and sort of the administrative burden of technology that's contributing to physician burnout. Right. Interoperability gets at that. So having a super efficient piece of technology or an EHR to document it, that's definitely a part of it. But also being able to reduce redundant 
documentation is another part. So if someone else, if I were just seen, for example, in the ED two weeks ago and they took my history and vitals and um, they got some background on me in terms of the medications that I'm actively on, why, if I presented to a specialist office two weeks later, why should I have to give the same list again, right? So patients are still filling out paper forms in the front office. When that data is all readily available, we just can't figure out a way to move it. Right. That, I think, when you get at what we're really trying to solve for, right? We're really trying to free up providers to be able to spend time with patients so that they can actually do what they were trained to do and do what they want to do, right? Which is to be able to improve patient outcomes by working with the patient as a whole, not living in this sort of perpetual sort of flood of having to enter more and more documentation that may or may not be even relevant to the patient's case that they're treating. So a good example, I was looking at his talk earlier and there was an article written about the fact that I think she was she was talking about really the, the quality programs in terms of all of this documentation you need to enter. But it doesn't really matter if there's smoking present in the house if the toddler just fell and bumped his head on the dresser, right? I'm still going to stitch him up, and it's not, it's not really relevant information for me. So we've right. got to figure out a way to get that cut down, and I think interoperability is going to help. Absolutely. What are you seeing as the barriers to why the industry has struggled to achieve seamless interoperability? As a vendor? From my perspective, I think it's a couple of things. One is the, the lack of standards. There's been a lot of options made available, some of which I think have gained more traction than others. So the CCDA is a good example of something that I actually think has gotten a decent amount of traction, right? We're, we're seeing that pretty well used with direct messaging. And so I think there's a potential platform for us to see that built out more. But you see other standards out there around IEG profiles or is FHIR going to be the future? What types of standards around APIs and services are going to be pushed? I think there's a lot of options and with flexibility comes benefit and cost, right? It could be great, right? Because you have multiple ways to move data, but it's really expensive for a vendor to implement a ton of different ways to integrate. And so standards is definitely one piece. I think that's seen us really be challenged in how to get there. But the second piece is really just the structure of the data. So EHR vendors, we all have different database schemas and we may or may not have an easy way of aligning that data, which is why standards become important. But when you look at the quantity of sort of free text that's out there, how do you move a free text note over appropriately into another system. So if you think that modernizing medicine is all structured, how do we take that? Where do we put that? And then how do we serve that up in a way to a physician that actually enables them to consume it and make good decisions off of it? Right. The one other thing that I'll note that I <laughs> I wish it wasn't just a study in cures. I wish that we were actually going to get some traction and go do it right away is around the patient identification. Like that's absolutely <laughs> that's, a, that's a big one. Right. If you if you can't figure out the right patient and do matching, then I mean it kinda doesn't matter, right? Because I am not confident that the data that I'm getting across is for the right patient and it may error out that comes across the bridge or you potentially run the risk of getting the wrong data on the wrong patient. Which is happening all the time. We've had two different people on our show and I just released a blog post this week just on that problem and the good news is there are other efforts with the patient ID, not as much teeth as the Cures Act, but hopefully 
we'll continue to make progress on that. After the CHIME National Patient ID Challenge mm-hmm. finishes and we learn really some technical alternatives to solving the real problem versus everybody thinking, well, you just create another number like the Social Security number. I think CHIME was brilliant in creating this challenge in that people really got to come up with solutions in the real world that overcome other communications problems, structure problems, standards problems for us as we go forward. So rather than sending a committee to Washington to design it and have it not work, we're actually getting a pilot phase with a CHIME National Patient ID Challenge. So kudos to them for that. Yeah, I agree. I'm very excited about that because I, I agree with you. I think the key is not in another number. <laughs> there are plenty of numbers associated with patient records. And what we need to figure out is how am I Mandy Long, regardless of where I'm seen? And it probably has something to do with just who I am as Mandy Long, and it's not an arbitrary identifier. So I'm also very excited to see the outcomes of that. Well, Mandy, we're up against the clock on time. We're definitely going to have to bring you back. You have so much great information. Before we let you go, I want to tell everybody, go out to www.modmed.com. That's M-O-D-M-E-D.com. Bookmark the site. Keep up with the great things that Dr. Sherling, Mandy, and their team are doing at Modernizing Medicine. There's new, great thought leadership out there almost every week, and you won't regret bookmarking it and keeping up with what they're doing. Mandy, thanks so much for stopping by. It was so great to have you. I really appreciate it today. Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. And that wraps this broadcast. On behalf of our guest, Mandy Long, I'm Joe Lavelle, and we'll see you soon on Intrepid Healthcare.